welcome 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 to 96 greers a podcast where we watch every feature film with judy greer in the cast i'm reg lynn and i'm patrick rapole and welcome to episode five um so today uh we are going to be discussing uh the 2001 rom-com the wedding planner mm-hmm. possibly notable because this I don't know if it can be said that Judy Greer has a definitive breakout role, but this is definitely a role where it really got her career started. Where right. where this is kind of I mean she's done, you know, we we talked about what planet are you from, which predates uh, Wedding Planner. Um, and, you know, she has uh, um, other credits before 2001, but but this is where her career really picks up steam. And you saw, start seeing her in, in a lot of stuff, and especially sort of these aughts rom-coms yes that early on that was where she um was sort of known for that was that was her bread and butter and she diversified and she's done all sorts of movies and there's all sorts of places you might know her from at this point but movies like wedding planner and 13 going on 30 and even 27 dresses um like all of those were the prototypical quote-unquote judy greer role yeah yeah when she when she jokes about being america's best friend instead of america's sweetheart these are the kind of roles that she's referencing and this is um this is the catalyst for that part of of her public persona so this is a really exciting episode this is this is really really getting in into the 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 greer lore and and the the essence of greer yes no absolutely this is where we're going to see those those pillars that hold up that 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 giant statue i don't know i didn't think about the metaphor before i said the word pillar I mean, there are statues on pillars. Typically, pillars are the most impressive thing of any building they're on, though. That I think was the that that's where that uh, that's when it or that went astray. I I don't I don't know enough about architecture to make a little quippy comment. So I I think we're both sort of way out of the buttress here. Yeah, we're gonna have to find our way back. Anyway, two thousand one. George Bush was president. Yes, uh, take yourself back. R- Ricky Martin was sweeping the nation. Um, your Tamagotchi ran out of batteries and you stopped caring and put it in a desk drawer and never thought about it again. The war on terror was just a, something scribbled on a post-it note in some right-wing think tank. <laughs> <laughs> and we also had the wedding planner. So speaking of um, these kinds of movies, uh, the, the very you know quintessential rom-com being um, a, a core feature of Judy Greer's professional life, this is also the first time that we are discussing a rom-com mm-hmm. on this podcast. We've seen movies that have romantic elements, comedic elements, but they seem to be in movies where there's other genres thrown in, like Pottersville, you know, kind of throws in some some quirky strange stuff and uh what planet are you from obviously there's like like a big sci-fi element there this is meat and potatoes straight down the middle yes when you look up rom-com in your encarta because it's 2001 you see a picture of the wedding planner and rom-coms have a long history in film um you know going back generations um where there's there's tropes that have developed over time, even before that, in in literature, in in theater, um, it's a subgenre that's developed over generations. Thinking about rom com movies, uh, Patrick, what are some of your favorites? Um, you know, I've I've always loved romantic comedies, even though I don't think 
uh, at the start, I would have had admitted it. But when I was in eighth grade, my favorite movie of all time was Annie Hall. Sure. For a long time, Woody Allen was my all-time favorite director. And so there was plenty of movies like, you know, Annie Hall and Manhattan and Love and Death and Hannah and Her Sisters that sort of would fall under this general blanket that I thought were excellent. I, um, and I could see that definitely for like a, a burgeoning cinephile in, in your t- teenage years with oh, yeah. Annie Hall and would be a kind of a go-to. Oh, yeah, for sure. And then, uh, you know, I like, you know, you can go back to something like Seven Chances by uh, Buster Keaton. Um, oh, is, sure. is a romantic comedy that ends with like the big chase at the end, you know, uh, mm-hmm. where he's trying to get to her. And the that's, that's the sort of trope that uh, was still in play in 2001 in this movie, as we'll talk about. I... I absolutely love Philadelphia Story. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of my favorites. And of course, uh, I was born in 1987, so I was like a uh, 15-year-old or whatever when Judd Apatow started releasing movies like uh, 40-Year-Old Virgin and Knocked Up and all of that. And, you know, Forgetting Sarah Marshall was mm-hmm. uh, produced by him as well. And like all of those were sort of where my brain went to in terms of like, this is... You know, for a long time, I wa- I grew up, I wanted to become a screenwriter. I wanted to move to Hollywood and be a screenwriter. And the kind of movies I always thought of myself as writing were basically romantic comedies. I, I basically always pictured myself, you know, people really needed to hear what 17-year-old Patrick had to say about <laughs> men, women, and relationships. Uh, and I just, I definitely envisioned myself making those kinds of movies. So those were all very important to me at a certain point. Even right. if at that age, I would have looked at The Wedding Planner and been like, uh, no, I'm into sophisticated things. Like when Steve Carell gets his chest waxed. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like how we talk about horror movies these days where it's like, it's like, it's an elevated rom-com. Yeah, yeah. Elevated. It's actually about grief. <laughs> right, right. They talk about their dicks for at least 10% of the runtime. That makes it an elevated rom-com. <laughs> yeah. And of, and of course, by elevated, it's like, doesn't just market to women. <laughs> that's, that's the important factor. Definitely. For a lot of my movie going life. Um, I feel like I would tell you that I was not into rom-coms. You know, I've always been a very serious feminist. Um, and, you know, I think I would probably for a long time just just say, you know, they're problematic for X, Y, Z reasons. And, and therefore, that's just not the kind of movie I like. But to be completely honest, some of my favorite movies are rom-coms. Um, I would say... Uh, I would be hard-pressed to choose between Moonstruck and Groundhog's Day. Sure. um, In terms of what some of my favorite movies are. I watch Groundhog's Day every Groundhog's Day. It is just a personal tradition that I have. And uh, even if it's just, you know, the familiarity of it, I always get something out of it. I, I love that movie. We could just... It's really a shame that Judy Greer is not in Groundhog's Day because I could talk for hours about that movie. Yeah, sure. Um, same thing with, with Moonstruck. Just a really fantastic movie that like I can always return to. When I think about the rom-coms that I enjoy, because I will still admit that there is a lot of tropes and a lot of conventions um, that do need to be critiqued. They're, they're a comfort food. They're like the, the casserole of, of movies. They're, they're warm, they're filling, they're something you just want to sit with on the couch and be cozy. Um, but with those problematic elements that can come in, I tend to prefer the rom-coms that have uh, an element of the fantastic to them, whether mm. it's something like Groundhog's Day, where there is a, a supernatural force at work or even if, if it's something like moonstruck where, where it's moon is as big as a pizza pie and, and, yeah and, and that's a mori baby and that's the whole movie spoiler alert for moonstruck um 
where where there there's just um there's just something heightened about the world and and there's something about it where it's really kind of taking you out of the normal everyday just how people are talking and acting um you know or even if it's something where it is set in a very specific um historical period mm, sure um something where uh i'm not sitting and thinking well that's not realistic because obviously it's not realistic um when i was doing research for this episode i came across a quote from mindy kaling where she said that she likes to think of rom-coms as a subgenre of sci-fi where once she puts one on she just tells herself the the rules of the real world do not apply sure um which i think is probably yeah. a very healthy way to go about being a rom-com fan um but I, I think for me having that element of like this is not at all real life um, helps me to to enjoy it without having those for sure things. I mean one of the good things that film is just truly spectacular at as a medium is fantasy it mm-hmm. is like a lot of the times you know superhero movies are big because they are just really convincing power fantasies yeah. and rom-coms are romantic fantasies yeah and um, and when you have it heightened it helps aid the fantasy part because you're not sitting there nitpicking everyone's decisions. Because when you go back to like the 30s or whatever and you look at a lot of these screwball comedies that uh, these movies are based on, like a lot of them, it's basically like people gleefully gaslighting each other. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like it's just no respect for personal boundaries. Right. There's no there's no mental health concerns at all in 1934. So it's just like, whatever. That's mm-hmm. not what we're doing here. But also as a contemporary viewer, it's easy to separate yourself from that because they are of a certain time. So even if, you know, watching Bringing Up Baby when it came out would have would have been like, you know, oh, this is this is contemporary. These are the kind of people who I kind of recognize right. and these are settings that I kind of recognize when you watch it today it's like oh it's Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant they're like these mythical figures to me so I, I can completely divorce that's myself. a good point yeah um, but but the legacy still li- lives and you can still watch movies that came out in this century uh, that mm. you you go and you this is this is really toxic behavior true um and so that fantasy, that fantasy element can help a lot. Or like you said, the historical context that you're just like, I'm not familiar enough that it might as well take place on another planet. Yeah. Um, before we did this podcast, uh, I fell into a Pride and Prejudice hole. Um, I started reading the novel and I got really into it, which surprised me. I was always a terrible student. I've never read a book from the 19th century that I really got into. And this one I got really into. And we started watching the BBC uh, 1995 miniseries. That's true. Which is excellent with uh, Colin Firth as uh, Mr. Darcy. Um, And then I started listening to a deep dive, like critical podcast of that series. That is, it's a six episode miniseries and they talked for 20 hours about it. And so I had just like two straight months of only thinking about Pride and Prejudice and Mm -hmm. becoming like Jane Austen pilled or whatever. So when (laughs) Wedding Planner, you know, was landed in my lap, I was so excited to like, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, I have all this. You're going to have all these interesting thoughts about how this is part of that legacy or whatever. Mm-hmm. No, not so much, but at, at the very least, I, I was certainly in the mood to receive this movie. Sure, sure. Um, Pride and Prejudice, I mean, you're, t- you're talking gold star romantic comedy. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. The Joe Wright movie, again, one of my favorite movies. Yeah. Um, and speaking of Jane Austen, um, so starting in 2021 and going through last year, um, there was a real-time project called Synchronous Emma, um, which you can still find at synchronousemma.wordpress.com. Um, 
I can't find the, the name of the uh, person who coordinated it right now, um, but it is a, a fantastic companion to reading Emma, where um, Emma takes place over the course of roughly a year, and this person uh, separated it into chunks based on time. So you read the Christmas scenes on Christmas, you, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So not only do you get this, this scheduled reading where the events of the novel are happening on, in the same um, part of the year that you are in currently, you also get a really wonderful, well-thought uh, companion of literary criticism uh, that this person both wrote and compiled uh, from literary critics who are Jane Austen experts. Um, it was a fantastic experience. Um, I had never completed a Jane Austen novel before. Um, so, no, that's not true. I did read Northanger Abbey um, in college. Uh, so I, I read I read Emma um, with this as my guide, and I saw the, uh, the recent... Um, film version with Anya Taylor-Joy in the, in the titular role. Um, so I also had like like this Jane Austen deep dive and kind of, um, you know, kind of had a chance to delve further into, uh, you know, this author who is so, you know, deeply influential on the movies that we see today. Um, and, and I'll agree with you. I don't think that The Wedding Planner um, is trying to be an homage to Austin or anything like that but I I did see some parallels maybe it's it's in the tropes um or maybe it's just um coincidental absolutely but there there is the there is the sort of sub sub genre of romantic comedy that is the like contemporary Austin th- the Bridget Jones's diaries yeah. of the world the cluelesses of the world right. fire islands there you go you so know. like um so this is not that but I yeah I I agree there was definitely they're just the nature of the world that the wedding planner exists in make it uh, sort of open to those kinds of readings yeah. or at least to those tropes. For sure. Um, but before we get any further into uh, spinning out into the universe of rom-coms, um, let's recap the plot of wedding planner for folks who um, haven't seen it. Mary is the best wedding planner in San Francisco. She's also single and hasn't been on a date in forever. Her old-fashioned Sicilian dad brings a guy over from the old country, Massimo, and encourages him to woo Mary and completely ignore her boundaries. But Mary is focused on her professional ambitions and she convinces wealthy entrepreneur Fran to hire her for her big day. Mary is almost run over by an out-of-control dumpster but is saved last minute by handsome pediatrician Steve. Mary's assistant Penny convinces Steve to go to the movies with Mary where they have a magical evening. A few days later, Mary learns that Steve is Fran's fiance. She's angry with him for lying, but the two of them gradually fall in love while planning Steve and Fran's wedding. Steve and Fran realize they aren't in love and call off their wedding right before the ceremony starts. Mary and Massimo almost get married too, since she decides she doesn't believe in true love and he's nice enough, but they call that off as well. Massimo helps Steve find Mary at the spot at Golden Gate Park where they had their first movie date and they kiss the end. So Patrick, what did you think about The Wedding Planner? I really enjoyed it. What? (laughs) (laughs) 
I liked it. Again, I was in the mood to receive the wedding planner as it is, and I do not want to claim that the wedding planner is anything it isn't. Um, okay. I don't think the wedding planner is like secretly brilliant. I don't think that this is a movie. Uh, I concur. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think this is a movie that sort of steps out of the very narrow lane of 2001 romantic comedy that it's trying to walk down. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just thought it worked. I just thought it was charming and fun and zippy. And there's just enough like bizarre, strange elements to it that I found really interesting that kept my attention and made the characters uh, a lot more three-dimensional than I expected them to. And I think probably if I really, you know, I talked about, I dove really deep into Private and Prejudice uh, as a precursor to this. Another thing that might help is watch Made in Manhattan before this, because Made in Manhattan is Jennifer Lopez uh, romantic comedy that's horrible, um, where Ray Fiennes has a meet-cute with her son. (laughs) <laughs> and oh. then he shows up in in the hotel room where she is and he's like oh, you're pretty good too and oh, then they geez. like it's, it's a horrible movie and it, there's no there's no energy to it there's no life there's no joy there's nothing quirky about it it is just like a really like mediocre cinderella story that is very dull and this in uh in comparison was just like oh what a what a fun surprise i'm i'm having a, i'm having a grand old time with these people okay so you did you did take um the tactic of putting this in the context of j lo's movie career a little bit yeah um see i i didn't this was the only i did watch some other rom-coms to kind of um prepare for the episode and also because valentine's day just passed and you know why, why not I'm a, i like seasonal movies when it's seasonally appropriate but i i didn't this was the only j-lo movie that mm-hmm. i watched so it's interesting that you had that comparison but you said that there were elements of the wedding planner that you found to be like unexpected choices that that made you kind of think about it differently um and i'm really interested to hear what those are because i had pretty much the exact opposite reaction where I felt that almost all of the choices in this movie were very mediocre, uninteresting, to be expected choices. There wasn't anything about this movie, uh, besides Judy Greer, that uh, really that really stuck out to me as 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 like, oh, this this scene, this this line, this character choice. It, it I had seen this movie. I don't remember the context in which I saw it. Um, probably like on an airplane or with my parents or, or something. The only thing that I remembered about it was that was the tango scene where, where they're arguing. That to me was like, was the most interesting part of this movie. Um, but I found the rest of it very forgettable. So what about it did you feel was, were these like interesting choices? Well, uh, first of all, I, I should say I, I'm coming into this as a very anti-wedding person. Sure. I'm like, I'm, very skeptical about the institution of marriage on the whole, but I'm definitely against the culture that pressures people to spend money they don't have on lavish weddings. Oh, 100%. Like, all of that is, like, super gross to me, and I'm just, like, not about it. Although we should say in this movie, they're not spending money that they don't have because it's a rom-com and everybody's got money. Well, right, right. But in general, this this tying into the culture that yeah. makes people feel bad if they don't spend money they don't have made me think I would go against it. This movie is very skeptical about marriage and about weddings 
uh, it kind of shares my skepticism, and I was not expecting that. I said, this is a movie with Matthew McConaughey and J-Lo, and it's called The Wedding Planner. I know how this is going to end. They're going to be the ones who get married. And that's not what happens. What happens is they both start a relationship. That's mm-hmm. how the movie ends, is they just go, okay, let's give this a shot. It doesn't end with uh, some big declaration where, you know, um, like you said, she almost gets married to Massimo at City Hall, and he's right. running towards City Hall. And I knew... In the, I knew 100% of my being, I knew that what was going to happen was Massimo was going to step aside, Matthew McConaughey was going to step in, and they'd both get, and that it would end with them getting married at City Hall. And the subversion would be, oh, they had like a tiny City Hall wedding instead of like a big crazy wedding. Mm. And that's, and that sort of just shows like how real their love is and how down to earth it is. But it's not that. Um, this is a movie about two enormously manipulative people finding <laughs> each other and trying to <laughs> manipulate each other. And that is really funny to me. Um, this movie opens with a shot of, uh, of the main character um, of Mary when she's a little girl and she's, you know, performing a mock wedding with her Barbie dolls Mm -hmm. and she's holding the Barbie doll and she's telling it how great it's what marriage is going to be. And then it dissolves into her reassuring a very nervous bride to be, um, that the wedding's going to go great and that her marriage is going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. And like... She's holding a toy and now she's like treating people like her toys. Mm. And like this whole movie is her manipulating people and like and like creating the artifice of a perfect event when in fact like none there's no perfection to be had anywhere. And you find out later in the movie um that the speech that she gives a nervous bride is basically um as wrote as saying welcome to starbucks what can i get you for exactly her? because she, she says the same thing to fran she just she switches tell, out the name she tells her that she's like oh when i did whitney houston's wedding you didn't do whitney houston's <laughs> wedding you're excited about getting abe froman the sausage king of the midwest's wedding you definitely did do it. like she's just lying she right. is just a liar who manipulates people um right. and so like i like that sort of cynical aspect of her character i feel like a lot of jennifer lopez movies are about feeding her ego and are about just like look like every every shot has to be like look how beautiful she is and look how elegant is and she's so smart and she's so capable Mm -hmm. and it's like and it makes her like kind of unrelatable because she is this like ascendant goddess figure and i was kind of and that's certainly like the case in made in manhattan and i was expecting that in this and it turns out she's a flawed character and that's Mm -hmm. just not what i was expecting Mm -hmm. matthew mcconaughey is a nightmare man who you save someone from a flying dumpster. Awesome. Good. If you see a flying dumpster, make sure no one's in its path because those things are heavy. (laughs) Um, After saving her, the next like 15 hours of his life are dedicated about turning on the charm and like doing super intense. I am getting married soon. So I better like sleep with you as soon as possible because I don't have an actual way to turn this into a relationship when I'm about to get married. So he is just trying to speed run this like courtship (laughs) thing. And he's like a super, like he's a handsome pediatrician, you know? Like, yeah, she almost gets hit by a dumpster because her, her, her Gucci high heel gets stuck in a grate and it's San Francisco. So there's frigging hills everywhere. And there's like a a rogue dumpster. He swoops her out of the way and then she faints or something. And then he brings her to a pediatric hospital where he works as opposed Mm -hmm. to an emergency room. Right. Also, when she wakes up, she's in a hospital gown, which means he definitely undressed her and put her in a hospital gown. So, like, yeah, and, and like ran a very sensual MRI while she was out. Um, and and she is when when she falls to the ground when he saves her, 
um, she is at least like coherent and conscious enough to be like, why are you so close to me? Why are you leaning on me still? And he's just like, I don't know why these things happen. It's just magic. <laughs> and he is he is putting, to, to use a term from the X-Files, he's putting the whammy on her. <laughs> he is trying to hypnotize her into, you know, thinking that he's this incredible, amazing, like just sexy angel from out of nowhere. Mm. And because she doesn't know what a scu- scuzzy guy he is, it works for a little bit. Yeah. yeah. And it works on me too, because it's like, other than his hair, which is horrible in this movie, like it's, that his hair is more off-putting than Nicolas Cage's hand in, in <laughs> Moose Rug. <laughs> That's much more of a deterrent, <laughs> uh, but whatever. It was ni- 2001. But like, other than that, like J-Lo is just one of the most attractive people. Like she is just one of those people who the camera loves and Mm -hmm. every angle of her, she just always looks exquisite. Mm -hmm. And Matthew McConaughey is just so charming. And he has this like real presence. He's not just this sort of blank wooden, like, you know, generically handsome person. He, I I really don't believe so. I especially let the, let the record show that I made a face. <laughs> Reg is skeptical. I think because of the intensity he puts in this role, and because like he has these little flares with his eyes that like are like almost like he was in the fourth Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie as like the bad guy, and he kind of has like Texas Chainsaw Massacre energy sometimes when he's like do- declaring his love. Oh yeah, that's that's exactly the scene I thought of when you said that there was a flare. I actually I wrote in my notes how high was he in this role because he just he just the the look in his eye it, it really looks like he's just gonna go on a rant about like aliens or the Illuminati on the bill or something because he's been like fucking hitting the bong all day he he just he just does have that look and and it's the moment where he's just like I just have to let you know I don't know you all but I love you and it's just there's, there's something about his eyes where it's just like kind of like off putting and it is like a little too intense it doesn't seem like. There's nothing soft about it. No. It's not loving. It's no. just it's like it's intense and it's it's like it's 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 like a closing in a uh-huh. boardroom kind of But she does the whammy too because beget at that scene with the nervous bride to be, mm-hmm. she gets this when she goes right before she goes into his speech, she puts on this look where her eyes get all glassy and she just gives this speech about the power of love. Yeah. And like I wrote in my notes, I want J-Lo to look at me and tell me I'm exquisite. <laughs> like <laughs> it is, it is like a really powerful, it is the thing where you're like, oh my gosh, no wonder this woman is so uh, successful in manipulating people. Yeah. Like you believe it. You know, <laughs> she's you, been practicing this since she was like seven. <laughs> right. You, you believe it. And so like, I love that these two characters are these just like really intense, cynically manipulative people um, the th- problem is that's a really interesting movie. This is the wedding planner. Mm-hmm. It can't really actually commit to the subversion, right. but there's just enough of that throughout. Um, it's sort of a callback to the older like screwball comedies where it's like two very like like strong opinionated intelligent people who are probably divorced mm-hmm. um, tr- trying to get one over on each other and falling back in love in the process. It's very like, his, like girl his girl Friday. Friday. Well, yeah. yeah, no one else in this movie is on their level. They're the only ones operating on this higher level. So when they yeah. say these little biting thing, when she's like planning his wedding and they're like sort of that's my favorite part of the movie is when she's in the back seat and they have their compilation CD of wedding songs mm-hmm. because it's 2001. You can't just like browse a Spotify playlist. Right. And every, she is judging the hell out of them. with <laughs> Like that is that to me is like, oh, good. You get a flawed, petty like feature in a romantic mm-hmm. comedy character mm-hmm. who's supposed to be like the perfect one we relate with. Like, I love that she is just like 
she's just sitting in that back seat going like, yeah, go ahead, go with this hamburger. You could have had filet mignon, but this basic <laughs> bitch wants to listen to Olivia Newton-John at her goddamn wedding. Because because you hear um, at her um, wedding planner firm that she and her coworkers um, kind of have this, this system of um, predicting how long a marriage is going to last based on certain aesthetic choices that are made about the ceremony and uh, one of it is like this particular Olivia Newton-John song where they're like oh if that's their first dance song forget it they're not gonna they're not gonna last you know un- until the honeymoon's over um, and that's the song that, that they choose also thinking about um, about Mary um, being a manipulative character uh, it sort of runs in the family because her father <laughs> is trying to speed run getting her engaged and sponsors this guy Massimo to come over from Sicily and is basically like like get you know you know go for her she's yours and 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 he does like that very uh typical like rom-com thing of like this other person has no boundaries I can follow her around at her job and just come in and introduce myself as her fiance and then there's even a scene where where she's asleep and her dad is measuring her for a wedding gown so this is obviously something where where you know it's 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 part of who she is as a as a as a person and as like a member of her family. Yeah. The, so the problem is eventually what's going to happen is Fran is going to leave town and they're going to have their actual like touching. Oh, we do get to know each other because that's that's the romantic comedy trope, right? Mm-hmm. Is like they're about to they're about to get together and then something happens to split them, keep them apart, and then they have to sort of reconcile. Mm-hmm. And sort of the reconciliation part is just like it does not really acknowledge that these are two horrible people. People. But I, I, so I can't like claim like, oh yeah, the wedding planner secret masterpiece because mm-hmm. it has this whole little storyline running through it that like you right. don't notice, but it works. But like it, it, for me, it was, I was laughing at just how like absolutely absurd, like the guy they got to play Massimo, uh, who I guess was in, uh, well, I don't remember the actor's name, but he was on I looked Grey's him up Anatomy? And he, he was on Grey's Anatomy for like 10 years or something. And he's like the whole, most worst Italian accent you've ever heard it's in your pretty life. Pretty bad. So there's just like that element and the fact that she only holds hangs out with old people. Um, yeah, yeah, she doesn't she doesn't have any friends. She spends she just spends time with her dad and her and her dad's friends. Did harken a bit to Emma where that's kind of Emma's so- social situation oh, really? too where um in Emma uh, she she you know she's a a, a wealthy noblewoman. She lives with her father on their estate. Um her mother has passed away and her father is um, a hypochondriac and he's very high maintenance. He's this very like, he has a lot of phobias. Um, so she has to care for him. And, um, that because of that, uh, because of that family dynamic, her ability to have a social life and to, um, you, you know, meet an eligible bachelor is very much stymied. Um, but so she responds to that by, um, you know, putting her energy into her father and into that that dynamic but also um saying well you know i take care of my father and i also take care of everyone around me so um i'm gonna play matchmaker mm. which is very much like what what j-lo does in this yeah she's um, very type a she has yeah. to be in charge of everything and be in control of everything yeah yeah there's she, a very funny moment where after waking up in the pediatric hospital she's in his office alone and she catches a look look at herself in the mirror and she looks beautiful but she is aghast at what she sees because her makeup is like not quite perfect mm-hmm. and she and like the music starts going bum, 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 and she like wacky like tries to fix her hair and makeup and everything 
Um, she's like super lockdown controlling. Everything right. has to be under her power. Yeah. And, and again, with, with, oh, I can predict how a marriage is going to turn out based on on the, the taste of the wedding, which is very similar to um, to how Emma um, tries to manipulate the people around her, where it's like, oh, I like you so much. I don't want you to I don't want you to marry this farmer. I want you to, to try and marry the vicar because I think you'd be uh, I, I want to see you marry him and, and and just sort of like like, oh, my way of of viewing the world world just getting like really into it because I actually can't control anything around me and it's really scary for me to think about that and you find out later in the movie that um that Mary was dumped right before her own wedding um because her ex-fiance hooked up with his you know uh, high, high school, school sweetheart, sweetheart. Yeah. yeah well and then the timeline of that works out where they don't say this explicitly but in an earlier scene, she says, I've been working here for seven years and I'm the best wedding planner you have. Yeah. And that wedding, that uh, failed wedding uh, with her fiance happened six years ago. So there's this narrative that was like, oh. she started a job, she got broken up with on the day of her wedding. Mm-hmm. And then she just like went head into the sand. I'm going to be the most cynic. Like she she has no emotions about anything that's happening in any of these weddings yeah. and that's what makes her so good <laughs> yeah but but then also having to sell this bill of goods about like i see you and your fiance said i can't believe she picked me uh which probably no fiance has ever said to her ever and i know you're gonna last forever um and so it's just so it is like the like knowing that is what predates all of these speeches and everything like it is the biggest pile of bullshit ever and there but there there's like one brief moment in that first wedding in the opening movie where she's looking and you kind of see like there's something there's still a little bit of romance in her but for the most part she is just like very cynical mm-hmm. head forward and that's what made her such a good wedding mm-hmm. planner so i think that's an interesting but she likes aspect. but she does like to see things go as planned right. she does like to bring these these events like fully orchestrated to fruition i mean i mean when you meet her uh, when you meet her as an adult she is um you know she is getting this wedding on its feet. She's, you know, she's calming the bride's jitters. She's finding the father of the bride who went off to have a little cry. She has a she's, Swiss army knife, little belt. Of, yeah, like, oh yeah. She's got like, she her, it's, I mean, it's not a fanny pack. She's not, this is 2001 and, and, and no one cool wears fanny packs, but yeah, she, it was she a fanny pack little... in the script. And Jennifer Lopez is like, I am not wearing yeah, a fanny pack like... in this movie. <laughs> get Prada in here <laughs> get their best designers to make me something where I can have my little tool belt but it is not a fanny pack but it's a fanny pack um but but yeah so so she she this maven of creating the illusion of perfection and romance even though you know she in her in her heart and in her mind she still has this like really hurtful event that she hasn't gotten over so there is a bit of tragedy there which is the same thing with with Emma where it's like she's just having to like constantly try and generate this illusion of perfection because she's so afraid of like what her future is going to be because she can't participate in society the way that like a woman of her age and status is supposed to so i like i like the character i like all those elements those elements to me are outside of the typical realm of romantic comedy that i expect um certainly outside of what i saw from romantic comedies that i was watching uh in preparation for this and Mm -hmm. like comparison like there's a little bit more uh character flaws and it's a it's a little bit more interesting and then there's also just a lot of weird choices like massimo the character in general is a bizarre thing uh to exist in a movie in 2001 um the uh scene where massimo uh invites steve to uh while 
while they're checking out a vineyard, where while Fran and Mary are checking out a vineyard mm-hmm. as a potential wedding location, Massimo's like, that's a woman stuff. What do we need is a man bonding. And they go to a gym. And it is just this stupid series of slapstick comedy uh, gags. There's this great moment when Massimo first shows up because you had that whole scene in, where JLo's in the backseat and she's like, I can't believe you want to marry this basic bitch. She's so lame that she wants Olivia Newton-John at the wedding. When Massimo shows up, Matthew McConaughey is delighted because like, oh, that's your fiance? You think he's better than... I'm a pediatrician. I don't know if you know. It kind of implies I'm going to be a good dad. Maybe that's hot or not. I who, who could say? But uh, I guess this doof with the, you know, uh, mm-hmm. with the horrible Italian accent. But he still feels the need to compete with him. He still gets competitive. Yeah. And, and he's jo- he's like just full-blown sprinting on a treadmill wearing dockers. Like, <laughs> it's such a weird scene. I, I, just, I thought that was so corny. I the The gender dynamics, there is this bizarre plate spinning act when it comes to masculinity in this movie especially when there's like the comparison of like Massimo and Steve so it's like you get Steve who is pediatrician I I, I was thinking about this before we even like started this movie where it's like in a rom-com usually the guy will have a profession where it's like it's showing that he is sensitive and nurturing and artistic but he's not gay Right, right, right. Very um, important. I, I feel I feel like like architect is the one where it's like that's the most artistic that you can get without being gay. Yeah. Um <laughs> but pediatrician's also good. That's the most nurturing you can get without being gay. Yeah. So um so you know, he's the pediatrician and he's sensitive. And when they go on their little um date, they dance together. And and she even jokes, like, oh, you can dance because you're gay. And he's like, No, my mom made me when I was a kid, which is so, sort of the the inversion of like of like hot lady in an action movie who had five brothers, so she yeah. knows how to like clean a gun or, or fix a car, stuff like that. My dad taught me how to clean this gun. Yeah, yeah. So 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 this it's sort of like 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 the gender inverted version of that. So he is like, you know, sensitive and, and graceful, but um but you know, trying to to like retain his like masculinity to make him um to, to make him uh desirable to, you know, like like the straight female audience I, yeah i guess you know he he's he's still in competition with with massimo who is um i mean still very like cute and and sort of like okay well you know there, there is like this kind of love triangle there with them too and he's like he's cute enough and like the the other the other women in the movie you know are constantly saying that about him but he does have this like excessive masculinity where he he does kind of make that comment about like oh wedding you know, planning weddings is for women. Let's go do chin-ups. Right. Um, you know, and, and just like... I will say, Massimo has a uh, very nice Etsy store. What with the bird nest he makes and then yeah. also the dollhouse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was one of those things where I'm like, what is this movie? What are we watching? Where his proposal involves him building an entire dollhouse and then putting the ring in it. So, so I watched this movie once through the whole way and then just saw chunks of it as as you were rewatching it like like so like at least twice i've seen this movie and i was sitting there because he because he makes her this dollhouse and he's like i made you this to put your dolls in uh and <laughs> and i'm like what 
dolls is he talking about? And then just the conversation that we were having, I was like, oh, right. When she was a little girl, she has the dolls. That, uh-huh. So I guess she still has the dolls. I feel like that was like a really weird, awkward call. Or like, or but, that's but, but they a, were yeah. childhood friends. So it's like maybe he remembers. Yeah, like, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, he just, I, I, and I mean, part of it is supposed to be like, oh, he's not from here. He doesn't speak the language. So he just makes these like really clunky kind of gross comments about her where Steve is like, you know, how long have you known her? And he's like, oh, I know her. I knew her before she had breasts and she looked well, his really first words bad. to her are where he's he starts negging her immediately yeah. right there at the YMCA yeah. where they're playing Scrabble. He goes, oh, you used to look shitty, but now you're pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, yeah, it's just this like really sort of like excessive machismo. And I guess that's kind of like an Italian stereotype. Yeah. too. Um, but so so it's like he's kind of the, the foil of Steve, but then also Steve feels the need to be like in direct competition with yeah. him and be all like smug and above it. It's just this like really kind of... Um, I thought it was very funny because it's not what I was expecting. I thought Steve was going to just like suffer Massimo. Uh-huh. And that was going to be the joke is that Massimo is so annoying and Steve has to sit through with him. Yeah. The fact that Ma- that Steve engages with him. And then at a certain point, they just walk by and they see that Steve and Massimo are like professional wrestling each other in the vineyard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and that's like like the first indication that, that Mary even likes Massimo because she's like, yeah, he's beating up Steve. <laughs> she doesn't like Massimo. She just hates Steve. She, she wants to fuck him, but she wants to like hold his face in her hand as she fucks him and goes, that's right, you asshole um the enemy of the enemy is my friend that's, an, that's exactly. another uh famous italian cinema sentiment yeah, are you sure that wasn't jane austen who said that <laughs> um i so like it's funny i think it, there's the there's just parts throughout this movie that caught me off guard and i thought were funny and one of those judy greer very funny in oh this movie oh my god oh yeah yeah, as we said earlier, this was um, sort of a a career. Um, this was like a career catalyst for her, and she's so good. <laughs> she's so, funny. so fucking funny. Um, she gets some dial. I, I mean, I feel like I feel. <laughs> I, I I think I think if there's like a '96 Greer's bingo card. Um, there's gonna be a square on there. It might be the free square. Of like us saying Judy Greer making some amazing creative choices with some garbage dialogue. Yes. Um. She yeah. She just brings this. I mean. I mean. She is the the uh, the assistant. She's like um like 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 J Lo's Mary's a uh, second in command um at at the uh, at the event planning agency. You know she's she's not as high in the ranks as Mary is, but she is still able to like run her own events. Mm-hmm. Um. But she's yeah, she's like 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 quirky work friend, and she's the one who's who's you know she's getting uh, she's getting Mary and Steve to to meet up together, and she's convincing I, her not to drop the account, and she's kind of she's like she's like the 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 Jiminy Cricket of this movie, like, yeah. Like she's keeping Mary making the choices to keep the plot rolling. Yeah, along. I uh, I I like that she's an interesting foil to Mary, where both Mary and her, you kind of understand why they're in the business. Where Mary is such a control freak, mm-hmm. she like being like this director of this massive event with all these moving parts like that first wedding we see it's all established during this really nice tracking shot that really just establishes how big the wedding is and how many things she has to keep track of it's all one take you know and so she is just like I need to be the person in charge and 
Judy Greer is like, I am always on three shots of espresso and I kind of like my personality only exists in the heightened reality of a wedding. <laughs> like she seems like someone who is like, she's just so intense and everything about her is just like so keyed up and, and buzzy and like she'll just start sentences and not know how they're going to end. And like all of that is just like, yeah, you seem like someone who's like right at home in the like heightened emotional state of a wedding. She seems like someone who should be focusing more on like sweet 16s and, and bar mitzvahs and Fair stuff. Enough. And, yes. and and less less on on these like you know white tie bazillion dollar upper crust weddings that that Mary's running, but um but yeah she she does have the energy where she seems like someone where um she just wants to throw a party you know yeah she she just wants everyone to have a good time at 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 her party and her name's Penny by the way Penny which I am pretty sure was like a place marker name for like spunky best friend and they just couldn't think of anything better so they kept it I think Penny works really well for her because that's about how much she's worth she does such a garbage <laughs> job throughout this <laughs> well i'm just saying like her job in in the one scene where they're where she goes to pick up mary from steve's office mm-hmm. is to get them together that night she does a fantastic job <laughs> she does it but only because that's already what steve wanted to do but like her thing is you know I've been thinking about a career in medicine (laughs) and I'd really like to pick your brain. Yeah. So come to a movie with us. Um, Which is immediately followed by the biggest laugh in the movie. And to me, it is not something that Judy Greer does, though she does something very funny immediately after. It is something that is just like sums up the delightfully loopy energy of Judy Greer, which is they are in the San Francisco park where they have the big screen set up for the movie under the stars. They're watching some, movie you've never heard of from the 50s it's not like a they don't insert uh um affair to remember or anything like that and that mm-hmm. it's just whatever but probably something that was public domain at the time she's standing there with mary and she's telling her you know she's giving her a little pep talk and then steve walks in with refreshments he's got three coffees and he turns to he turns to petty he goes and here's your gumball yeah, that's right she's requested a gumball <laughs> So I paused the movie. I was laughing so hard I could not continue. And Reg, I will say, was upstairs making dinner and stopped what they were doing and went, really? <laughs> like, like heard me laughing and thought it had to be sarcastic that I was enjoying the wedding planner this much. I was as surprised as they were. But Judy Greer, uh, like we talked about, the hottie with the hat has a has a has kids named Colton and uh, whatever Sterling or and something, Sky, and Skyler or whatever. Skyler, yeah, that's Skyler right. Skyler and Colton, like that's like part of the Judy Greer coordinates. Part of the Judy Greer coordinates is um, panics and doesn't know what to say, so requests a gumball. And the fact that that's not on screen, but you just have Matthew McConaughey returning and saying, "And here's your gumball," is so funny. When I was watching that scene for the first time. Was I sober? I don't remember. Um, <laughs> and and he brings her the gumball. So this movie is set in San Francisco, and it's a lot of like this particular scene happens in in Golden Gate Park, and and you see the Golden Gate Bridge in the in the background a lot. And of course, there's like the um, the, the the hills and and everything. And my what my galaxy brain uh, came up with was is that a San Francisco thing? Like having a gumball. <laughs> You got to have one of our sourdough gumballs. Yeah, sourdough gumballs. This is my San Francisco accent. (laughs) 
very funny. Uh, they at some point they're at a Greek wedding at a very fancy hotel, yeah. and they are smashing all of the plates, and yeah. she's losing her mind. But then, as soon as she finds out that Mary and Steve hit it off that night, she drops all the plates on the ground and shouts "Yay!" and then is immediately whisked off by like eight Italian, like eight Greek men who yeah. don't speak English. <laughs> yeah, and, and and once they kind of hoist her over her head, she's like, "Oh, okay, I'm just going with this." Like a minute ago, I was yelling at you and trying to stop you from smashing plates, which is apparently a Greek tradition. I don't know, um, but yeah, then they then they just pick her up and whisk her away, and she's just going with she's it. She's got real goldfish energy where she forgets what she was feeling 15 <laughs> seconds ago. So there are dull, there's dull points of the movie. I do I did I did think that uh, him pulling off the penis was pretty funny on the sta- on that fake looking statue. I don't know what the premise of that garden is. Are they just like walking through a museum's garden and go, "We have so much money, we're just gonna pluck a piece of art from a museum"? I, I guess. I mean, so so Steve's fiance Fran is a wealthy entrepreneur. From I made a, a, I made a joke about Abe Froman. She has, runs the pets because it's 2001. She runs the pets.com of sausage. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> and so, so and again, because it's 2001, um, the way that we are introduced to her is that Mary goes to a newsstand and gets a print copy of Yahoo magazine <laughs> that Fran is on the cover of. All the Internet that's fit to print. <laughs> So anyway, she has she wants a lavish wedding. They're picking out statues. He pulls off yeah. of, of one of the statue's penis, act, tries to super glue it on, accidentally super glues it. This is like classic, just like goofy. Oh yeah, it is. It is definitely a a sequence that is supposed to be funny. I, I I thought it was amusing. There's a security guard who's having none of it. Right. Uh, He's like, you're not allowed to touch the statues. Yeah. And Matthew McConaughey looks like a pervert because he can't stop groping that statue's penis or whatever. So that was I found it amusing, if not actually funny. Then it cuts to a close-up of his hand, and because Mary just has that uh, the tool belt, in this case, in her purse, she has some super glue solvent mm-hmm. um, because she's just that person. Uh, it cuts to a close-up of her applying that solvent, and you hear from off-screen Matthew Bugatti go, All right. It's <laughs> <laughs> just like a close-up of a penis in his hand. Just, All right. <laughs> I, I saw this I saw great four stars. <laughs> I saw yeah, I saw that scene three times in the course of a week and lost my goddamn mind every time I heard him go, all right. <laughs> so it's it's just that's all I need. I I there was a point in time where I thought I was too good for this kind of trash. I had uh-huh. my own kind of trash, and I'm like, well, this is not the kind of trash that I'm into. Mm-hmm. It turns out I just need it to have like be well paced and be kind of loopy um and i felt that this movie was well paced and just kind of loopy at times i'll agree with you that it's loopy at times also i will say going back to 2001 uh-huh the direction um at hand here is so much more ambitious than anything you're going to see in a modern romantic comedy, like made for streaming or whatever. Mm-hmm. One of the movies that you watched uh, when you were just sort of watching a bunch of rom-coms to get you situated in oh, the yeah. genre was The Big Sick. I did. I Big did, Sick yeah. is classic Apatow, which is to say it looks like a TV show. Um, there's no cinematic identity to any of those Apatow produced movies. And like this movie has a lot, like it has that opening long take where she's running through the church and getting everyone set up. It has that really great sequence at the ballroom dancing class where they're sort of dance fighting like, uh, like Darcy and Elizabeth at uh, Hastings. Um, It has, it has this really great shot where she gets really drunk after seeing her fiance Mm -hmm. and he's trying to like, get her into her apartment building and she wanders off. And because it's San Francisco, she, her apartment building's right on top of a giant hill. 
and there's this crane shot where the crane lifts up as she's wandering off the precipice and it looks like she's about to fall off the edge of the earth and he has to like run over and grab her like there's just little bits of cinematic uh like direction uh that you're just that it's just like watch it and this happens all the time you'll watch a movie from like 1997 that's just some trash and mm-hmm. there'll be a shot and you're like is this a paul thomas anderson movie that's gorgeous and that's yeah. just because standards have lowered dramatically in yeah. the in, you know the decades since and and this is a movie that that does um take full advantage of the rom-com trope of we are setting this in a specific city that people associate with romance and just going whole hog on the beautiful um, settings of the city, the the classic views. I mean, yeah, the cinematography is great. Um, and, and I do agree with all, you. All that, the that people it like, is very like, like technically proficient. All the there people are, getting up and dancing at, in the park during that first movie screening. Like right. It just starts happening in the background out of focus. And then right. there's this like big shot where you just see all these couples dancing. It's it, yeah. like, I don't know why this random 50s movie is such a cult sensation that everyone gets up and dances at a certain point. Like it's uh, like, stop making sense at the music box yeah yeah where it's, it's like oh this is this is the rocky horror of like forgotten public domain romantic comedies uh, but from I, 60 years ago what I, what I don't want to do is to tell anyone that it works like holistically as like this is actually secretly a really great movie because yeah. of this i just there's enough of that where there's every almost every scene had something that i enjoyed about it i i, I will agree with you that they, this is from a time where there was more attention to um the technical quality of even a, a movie, you know, like like a like a rom com like this, um, where you know, you know, the, the the crane shots, the long tracking shots, um, those setups are are great, and it it does look great. I guess with the with the big sick, it's a little bit different because it is someone writing about their own life. The big um, the big sick also, if you take it as like where it's situated in rom com, big sick is elevated rom com. We have cultural issues, we have messy flawed yeah, characters, yeah. we have you know. Uh, serious uh, health crisis, like and and again, and again it is someone uh, writing about their own experience. Um, but well, both Camille Nanjiani and, and his wife co co-writing the script about um, their relationship, and right. you know, so it's it's not quite the same. And it does, it is like very specifically set in Chicago, but that's more the function of. Um, where uh Camille Nanjiani is in his career um because um you know the Chicago stand-up comedy scene being like a very specific thing um it's like an incubator for talent before they move yeah. to New York and LA yeah, like, and do yeah, it professionally like, like like one of his sassy friends in the movie is A.D. Bryant who did get her start in the Chicago improv scene before going on SNL right um so so Chicago, it's like, so Chicago is kind of like a character in the movie, but there's not like, there's not scenes set at these like, you know, beautiful, iconic um, locations in Chicago. It's it's not like, it's not gushing over the architecture. Um, and there's plenty of architecture here to gush over. My God. Um, the, the way, the way that Wedding Planner does over, yeah. uh, over San Francisco. Yeah. I have been convinced by you, the visual elements of this movie are, um, something that really make it worth seeing. Um, I was just so taken out of it by the the writing and and the characters. Um, I, I do like your take on it, uh, where it is sort of like these two manipulative people trying to get what they want out of each other. Um, but you know, and again, kind of hearkening back to to where that is similar to something like like His Girl Friday or Philadelphia Story. Yeah, it's. I mean, those movies, His Girl Friday and Philadelphia Story are movies that fully know this and like yeah. commit to this is the story we are telling. I, I could see the, the the like the writers of this movie or like like the, the people who come up with the story um, 
maybe maybe mentioning that as they're writing it it falls so short of that i didn't i didn't find it i mean with the exception of like the gumball thing or like the, like a few little choices Th- there's nothing witty or sparkling about no. the dialogue it, I, no. I think i think there's at least two or three times where where like the the joke that that mary gets is she goes ah shut up to steve and it's like really you might you might it might as well be like a like a did i really just see that kind of thing <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. It, also waste kathy Jimmy. Wait, yeah, completely waste her. Um, a lot of the times with these rom coms, what you do is you look at the cast list ahead of time and you go, yep. "Oh, look at this! Oh, oh yeah, Kathy and Jimmy. We yeah. got Kevin Pollock. We got that guy from Murphy Brown. This could yeah. be something." Yeah, Fred Willard. I was excited to see Fred Willard because he's always delightful, except in this movie where he's just like the dance teacher and a horrible gay stereotype. Um, I mean, he he's. I I think that they probably went with the take where he toned down his lisp the most. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean it's it's 2001. Um, the there's some kind of icky gay jokes. The I mean, director not... is gay, to be fair, but also he's a gay director in mainstream Hollywood, so yeah. it's not like he's going to like secretly make a movie that's I, super pro queer. Yeah, I I guess. Um, you, you know, it not 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 as bad as a lot of movies in 2001 would have been, but also like for a movie that's like set in San Francisco where queerness is a big part of like that, that city's like history and identity. It's, it still felt really uncomfortable to me, but I really enjoyed that, that, uh, the touch, the, that Steve, um, has to hop on the back of Massimo's moped, uh, uh, in order to catch Mary. And because Massimo is planning on riding on that moped with Mary, Steve is wearing a helmet that has a veil on it. Right. I thought that was very funny. And that, I like that and, I, and I like that the runners in the marathon that they drive through got excited when they saw it. And like, is the voice that comes out of those runners a gay stereotypical yeah. voice? Yes, but still, it's funny. I like that. It. it I, I guess. It, I guess it's it was funny fine. to me. Yeah, <laughs> I liked it. It's it's charming. <laughs> And you're just gonna pop up everywhere I go until I admit it's charming. Right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, you used to have bad taste in movies, but now I see <laughs> that you're the kind of person who could appreciate the wedding planner. I sure have learned something today in this beautiful city in which we live. Um, also, I did not care for the acting styles of. Jennifer Lopez or Matthew McConaughey. I thought mm-hmm. they had no chemistry. Mm-hmm. I didn't think either of them was particularly good in this movie. Um, and when when that's the axis of the the cinematic world that I'm being presented, it just all crumbles. I, it works better when they hate each other than when they're into each other um, for me. But I did I did like Matthew McConaughey because he did bring that slightly unhinged energy. Um, to Steve in a way that helped my, you know, reading of it as a movie about manipulative people. And J-Lo is just like beautiful. So that's like, that helps, I guess. But like, I'm not, I don't think J-Lo is, she, she can be very well cast. There are movies where you're like, oh, hell yeah, J-Lo. Like Out of Sight is a great movie that mm-hmm. she's great in, but mm-hmm. it's great just because she's utilized correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't think she's a great actor or anything like that. When I was watching her in this movie, um, my negative reaction to her performance made me think of your uh, take on Audrey Hepburn. 
Oh, okay. Um, I don't know if you if you care to share your your opinions on Audrey Hepburn. My take on Audrey Hepburn is that she's bad at acting, and she's mostly cast in movies where the conceit is she is one of the most charming and delightful people you ever see. And I don't think she's charming or delightful. I don't I don't I don't necessarily know if I have a hotter take than that, or if that applies um, to what you felt with J Lo. You've said in the past that you feel like a lot of Audrey Hepburn's acting is her just making quirky facial expressions and kind of emoting and having these like yes. big doe eyes yeah. and that kind of being her appeal and it's like not actually appeal sure um and i felt like that was j-lo's miscast in this movie you know when i was watching her it just it just felt like a lot of these like big like emotive reactions where Mm -hmm. it's like she's just trying where where she's just kind of relying on like having big doe eyes or just doing like like a weird double take kind of thing and and that's just kind of what it what it made me think of was i part of that is that but then part of that also the thing about j-lo is that she just seems very like together and shrewd and on top of everything because she is just like so well put together and like you just know her as someone who has had a you know a fantastic career and has just been on top for so long and everything so Mm -hmm. she has that power so when she is in the role of the wedding planner who's on top of everything and Mm -hmm. she's like talking to Kathy and Jimmy like you know I'm gonna I'm going to start my own thing. If you don't make me partner. Yeah. Like you go that, like that's a good, that's, that's well cast. Like that's, or that, yeah. that plays within her strengths. I should say. For sure. Um, the parts where she goes, Ooh, Ooh. And like, she starts looking herself in the mirror and fixing her makeup yeah. and everything. Like that part is just her emoting. Or she's on a runaway horse and she's like trying to just be like, nice puppy, nice puppy or whatever. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't work. No, it's I mean, it's, flat. you know, it's, uh, it's Sandra Bullock. This is a Sandra Bullock movie. Should have been yeah. Sandra Bullock. Yeah. It's not Sandra Bullock. It's yeah. Jennifer Lopez. What are you going to do? But, <laughs> but like Sandra Bullock is the person who could sell this. So I think something else that we were kind of um, discussing in preparation for this episode and, and after watching this movie um, was the idea of like the rom-com tropes. Mm-hmm. And we have mentioned a few already. Um, I, I think uh, I think one of the standout ones for us here is like a, a, a dance scene that really brings the, uh, the 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 dynamic of the characters to to the forefront and like the tango scene where they're where uh where steven and mary are arguing with each other about like what happened that night and you lied no you lied um like that's that's one of the the best scenes in the in the movie um were there any other tropes that you thought of while watching this movie that that you thought um it did a particularly interesting job with either either subverting or just holding up the trope but pulling it off particularly well um i mean like i mentioned already that this ends with like a big chase for the for the suitor oh, to declare right. his love that's and right that which you know i don't know if it originated in seven chances in 1928 mm-hmm. but i don't know of any older movies than that <laughs> that have it um also when he gets in in the ta- you when he gets in the taxi um to to race to where mary is um the the taxi driver is the same uh, driver who um, set loose the uh, the dumpster that almost uh, flattened Mary in the beginning of the movie. That honestly is the most troubling stereotype in the movie is that the it's the Asian driver yeah, who's like that's true. Who's terrible. That's true. I mean, yeah, it was like fun callback, but also racist stereotype. If you want to like speak broadly, like you go back to like just like foundational theater things, like a comedy is a is a work that ends in a wedding Mm -hmm. like this subverts that where this is like wedding, wedding, wedding. And I, you know, romantic comedies are commercials. They are, Mm -hmm. they're fabulous. They don't 
you know, they, they're about people who are rich because you want to see their fabulous lives. Mm-hmm. And this movie has a lot of wedding porn where you're just going to, <laughs> like, look at these incredible venues and imagine your own wedding there. Yeah. And just being like, wow, yeah, I'd love to just have a weekend where I could travel to different vineyards and see which one is up to snuff of my perfect. I want to smash some plates. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so I do think it is subversive that even though it does give the paying audience what they wanted in terms of wedding porn, mm-hmm. it is not like, and then it ends in a wedding and they kiss and you hear, and then there's like a one last joke where Judy Greer says something silly in the audience yeah. and everyone's clapping. And then we the, say the end. They're literally back to square one. They, they yeah. go back to the, to the spot of their first date. Right. Um, so yeah, it, it does, it does do a good job of subverting that. Trope. Um, I think there's. Something that is sort of another thing that kind of goes unspoken that I'm not a fan of in this is that it's somewhat implied that she is like ditching her career and that like her career was a was like an inadequate substitute for her her romantic life. Yeah. When she abandons the wedding before she even knows that Steve and and Fran are about to call it off. Mm -hmm. Another scene in which Steve gives Fran the whammy and he's like, you don't even want to get married. And she's just like, yes, I do. And he's like, do you really, though? And she's like, I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> like, And then he sends her off to Tahiti on her own to go on their honeymoon by herself. Without telling her that he's in love with the wedding planner. That's right. He that's right. never, never discloses that. Mary. What an asshole. Um, <laughs> the, the come clean scene does not feature him coming clean. Um, I do think that there is the sort of idea of women really want to be loved and they mm-hmm. really want a fulfilling romantic relationship. And sometimes when they can't get that, what they'll do is they'll find something to substitute it. And I think the implication of this movie is that it's like, you know, Mary, wedding planning is just like, that's not really what's important to her. Mm-hmm. There is a montage sequence um, sort of as we're moving into the third act of the movie where it's like Steve is going through with the wedding and Mary's going through with planning the wedding and, and he's sort of moodily getting fitted for a tux and she signs the contract to be uh, the partner in the firm mm-hmm. but she does give up this account and she hands it over to Judy Greer and says just run this wedding I can't do it I'll give you the whole commission that's okay you know what I forgot the, about the montage where she signs the contract I thought the mm-hmm. I in my head her becoming partner was contingent on her getting this wedding to come off probably Probably her career doesn't fare well after the disastrous collapse of the wedding. And then it's like, oh, wait, and that, yeah, that was really unfortunate. Who are you dating now? Wait a second. (laughs) Wait a second. You're the reason this... That is that if that gets out, she becomes poison in this industry. No one wants to touch her. I mean, financially, I would imagine that because they've done all the work that they would still get paid. But but you're right. I think her reputation would really take a dive, especially if she and Steve decide to go through with having a relationship. Because you're right. Just to kind of reiterate, this does skip the trope of like fast forward to the wedding and and the last scene being the wedding. So, you know, maybe a week goes by and she's like, wait a minute. I put all this work into my career and... And also, this guy's creepy. And he said that he was out helping an old lady across the street. And I'm pretty sure that he didn't need him to come back at 1 a.m. What's going on with Steve? I don't know. Got some questions for you, Steve. Yeah, and and this also does fall into the uh, enemies to lovers trope, which is very common in in romantic comedies. This movie wants to to kind of have it both ways because there is the meet cute with the dumpster. uh, And then they go on the date and then they hate each other so it's really trying to, to have um both of these of these storylines where there's like the the love at first sight 
thing which you seem to to feel was is just like cold uh calculated manipulation mm-hmm. on steve and steve's part but there is where the, the dumpster's coming and and he he just throws himself on her and then he's lying on top of her and talking to her uh and and that to me felt very much like the kind of thing you would you would see in like romantic fan fiction where it's like it's like, oh, I'm I'm so like lost in your eyes or whatever that I don't realize that like I'm still like lying on top of you. And, and this like moment of like physical contact is just stretching out into an eternity. That felt like very fan fiction sure. to me. But it, it, it is so it is this like this like love at first sight. But then it's also enemies to 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 lovers. Mm-hmm. It sold that well enough to me. I think a similar structure exists in 10 Things I Hate About You. Where it's like they're getting along well and then Heath Ledger makes a mistake and then mm-hmm. he has to, he's back on square one and he has to recharm her. Yeah, didn't bother me. Okay. And of course we have the the best sassy best friend of all. Well, <laughs> you know what's interesting about this is Judy Greer being America's best friend. I was expecting her to be, I was expecting Penny to be Mary's best friend. Mm-hmm. Penny is Mary's assistant. Mary right. doesn't really have a lot of respect for Penny. You don't really get the idea that Mary likes to hang out with Penny outside right, of work. Right. I think Penny is very useful to Mary because Penny worships the ground that Mary walks on. So she's like, well, you're going to do whatever I say and not, not question it and not have any ideas of your own because you're just going to... Like, she's another person she's manipulating, honestly. And, but also Penny is like very conveniently... Um interested in enabling mary's social life where she's mm-hmm. like oh a handsome doctor i think she's say. just in love with mary not not maybe romantically but it <laughs> but certainly just like you're so cool she does look up to her yeah. um and and honestly like when Mar- after mary has that night in the park with steve it's fran that she's telling this all to and for a bit there right. fran is the best friend character which i thought was an interesting right. subversion is she's the romantic rival but for a little bit there they're getting along and fran is actually not presented as just like oh my god can you believe he was about to marry her she's so awful like she mm-hmm. is actually presented as kind of reasonable and like not totally irrational and not totally stuck up um, in a in a way that did surprise me and and maybe was another sort of pleasant surprise with me watching this movie. Yeah, I think I think that is something that is um relatively common when it comes to movies where there are love triangles where um we, we watched uh, what if with, oh, sure, with Zoe sure. Kazan and Daniel Radcliffe where uh Rafe Spall is uh Zoe Kazan's like almost fiance and they seem like they they've got a good thing going they've been living together they got like a stable relationship he's an okay guy um it's just your Daniel Radcliffe's the protagonist so you're supposed to be on his side yeah um or even uh kind of going back to to Moon struck you know um uh Cher is engaged to Danny Aiello who seems like a perfectly nice guy he's he's Fair. really sweet and Nicolas Cage comes off like like a like a complete nut job and and the move you you have to be won over to him you're not automatically on his side yeah yeah or uh, another one that I thought of was uh, was Bull Durham where uh you you kind of want Susan Sarandon to end up with either of those guys because it's like Tim Robinson. He's he's like th- this young guy. He's kind of a mess. But I mean, I don't know. Everyone loves a cougar. Uh, yeah, I guess the ones I watched in prep for this were like Bridget Jones's Diary, where like Hugh Grant is horrible. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like Hugh Grant is the uh, Wickham character, basically, and is as about as horrible as that implies. Isn't he kind of like a sexy bad boy, though? Because that's like Wickham. He's like the sexy bad boy. 
you you might think that at first. I mean, it's I didn't watch it. To, so. The the Bridget Jones's Diary is a rated R romantic comedy, and I think it's having a little fun being like we're a little bit cheeky, we're a little bit edgy, and mm-hmm. what that actually translates to when you watch it twenty years later is we're really horribly dated, and uh. all of this foreplay is just sexual harassment and like all there's like a lot of stuff where he's immediately off-putting i think a 2001 audience would probably find him more like the bad boy gotcha gotcha that's about all i have to say uh about the wedding planner um did you have any other feelings you wanted to say about the wedding planner from 2001 no i think i've aired all my grievances okay um (laughs) so um now we're gonna move on to the traditional next portion of the podcast if the discussion about the movie itself is the ceremony we are now moving on to to the reception portion of the podcast which is our ever evolving to be named to be figured out uh question segments it's like a wedding dj's playlist there's a lot of classics on there but it's not always in the same order there's different elements juggled around the true thing right in the center is judy greer that's right that's right so um Patrick, would you like to um, to start with your question? Absolutely. So um, for the, for once, we're actually going to return to an old segment, uh, Greer of Missing Out, which is to say, Judy Greer is so perfect in this movie, but if you had to recast her, who else would you get to play Penny? So th- this is a hard one because no one brings Judy Greer's energy. So I just had to, to let go of that fantasy that there's another Judy Greer out there in the world. I think that's very smart. I um, did the same. My thought was, well, who else would be a, a sassy, quirky assistant who would be funny and and charming and memorable, but also like tell the protagonist, look, Mary, here's what you need to do. I'm going to make it so you and Steve get together. I'm going to make sure that you don't that you don't drop this account because you have feelings for him and kind of keep the movie going. Was there someone who was playing a sassy, quirky assistant in a comedy in 2001 and had already been won an Emmy for that role? Yes, there absolutely was. And her name is Megan Mullally and she was on Will and Grace. And I think I think that bringing her into this movie, it could have been like a little bit of stunt casting where it's like, oh, you've seen her in New York. Now she's in San Francisco. What's she up to now? Um, you know, very different energy from Judy Greer, um, but still, you know, someone with with a with a big personality, big comic presence, very memorable and would be like a really uh, great foil to Jennifer Lopez in a very different kind of way. Um, so that's who I would recast in the role of Penny. I like Although it. probably give her a different name. I think she's Penelope. She's not really a Penny. No, no, no. She's not a Penny. Um, so for me, one thing about Judy Greer's performance in this that I observed is that you got the feeling that director Adam Shankman sort of just told her to riff. Um, there's a <laughs> yes. lot of scenes where she is she has the last line or she, like the camera, it ends with camera lingering on her. And you get the feeling that she was told, all right, you get through these lines and then as they walk away, you say something. Mm -hmm. Or like as you walk away from the scene, you say something. Um, And so I wanted to find someone who had like real comedy experience who could, you know, bring their own humor to it. And with that, maybe even change the dialogue around and like have the role be totally different. So exact opposite energy, Mary Lynn Rice Cup. Um, the assistant from Larry Sanders' show. Oh, oh, 
right, right, right. And and uh, Adam Sandler's sister in Punch Drunk Love. In Punch Drunk Love. Oh, uh, my God. Cast member of Mr. Show. <laughs> she uh, is... She is, if you look up the word sullen in the dictionary, you will see her beautiful face. Oh my God. Um, and I like the idea that she is this like, instead of being this like yappy little uh, toy poodle who's hopping around uh, Jennifer Lopez's feet, mm-hmm. she is just this sad like pug who is just following her and looking up at her and she has this doom and gloom vibe and she's like, well, what are we going to do? You know, like, you know, the belly dancer showed up with a tattoo. <laughs> And just like a kind of whiny or whatever. And like, no, you can't. You have to get this account. And like that, like the pep talk is like her, like griefing her with it. I, I would love to see um, shots of like high maintenance brides and fathers of the brides, etc. Just reacting to her presence at their at their fancy <laughs> wedding. That would be great. She would not say yippee as she's whisked off by six anonymous Greek beds. She's she would... never said yippee in her whole entire life. <laughs> So I just think that would be a very funny counterbalance uh, to the energy of this movie. Um, And I think it would just be, it would probably be a bad choice because she would just like, it would, it would just bring the tone down to whatever she was up to. But she can perform fast paced dialogue. She can, she does, can do a walk and talk. She, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, the energy that she brings to like something like Punch Drunk Love. Yeah. um, Where the camera is like zooming around in these long takes and she's badgering like Adam Sandler. Yeah. Or or Larry Sanders where there is that very like snappy pace to it and she doesn't, she doesn't bring those scenes down at all. Yeah. So like she can absolutely fit into this kind of movie, but just be I could see that. Totally different. My segment was, I like, I I like to kind of get a little, you know, imaginative, get a little creative, create a little tableau here. Let's paint uh, mind pictures, yeah. everybody. Close your eyes unless you're driving. <laughs> Find a relaxed position. Take a deep breath. Mm. We're going to go on a little mind journey. That's right. <laughs> um, so my thought was, Penny, after the events of the movie, maybe it's her turn to get married. What does it look like? What What is Penny's... Uh, wedding story and i like to call this segment greer becomes the bride that's fu- that's very i, <laughs> I like it Th- thank you i thought you were gonna throw something at me yeah. I, I i i feel like i feel like it's a little that, bit that, of a gamble with a pun that, but... lo- that look on my face was me trying to work the extra syllable into the original phrase <laughs> um i like it um my take on this is that penny is someone who is in this situation, the most indecisive person in the world, but the most enthusiastic person in the world. Mm-hmm. So I think she looks like someone made a collage out of 15 wedding magazines, or if someone made an all-you-can-eat buffet out of wedding, that would be <laughs> what her thing is. There is no coherent theme. It is a nightmare of clashing tones <laughs> And designs. I think she is smashing plates. I think she is on the chair and they're singing Have Nagila. I think that um, they're doing the money dance from Indian weddings. I think she picks a little bit from every wedding ever. Um, and that basically you don't know what you're going to get. I think there's a live band and a DJ. And they, <laughs> they litter, and she and she gets really flustered that one feels threatened by the other. So she makes them trade off songs. So literally every other song is either live music or a DJ. (laughs) I think it is the most, just the most wedding. It's too like, not the most, like not the most lavish wedding, not the most spectacular wedding, but just the most of it. 
she she just brings all of her wedding planner experience in and and just has this like cacophony of of her career mm-hmm. and all all of it was panic decisions that she was really excited mm-hmm. about and not until the day did she arrive and realize she even made those decisions what does her fiance think of all this well her fiance is played by bob balaban <laughs> Bob Balaban is a very patient man. Uh-huh. Her, her name is Penny, so let's call him Charles. Um, Charles is a very patient man. Charles loves Penny for her enthusiasm, but when he says it, you don't quite believe him because he goes, I love Penny for her enthusiasm. <laughs> I am just imagining Bob Balaban sitting patiently wearing like the loudest like red crushed velvet tuxedo. Yeah. Just yeah. sort of like like patiently he, sitting waiting for her to like stop spinning out mm-hmm. <laughs> and to actually like friggin say her vows and marry him. I think they stumbled into each other. He is like a museum curator or some very cushy oh. fancy high art job sure. where he has a lot of money. And wears a bow tie. And he is a widower <laughs> and she they ran into each other and she said something that he said oh my my wife used to say something like that and then she thought the idea that she was like bringing something of that energy to him was so romantic that she instantly like pitched this romantic comedy movie in her head where they are destined to be married Uh and then she just willed it into existence and he's bob balaban so he couldn't stop it (laughs) (laughs) so it's it's like it's like uh judy greer's penny does crazy ex-girlfriend yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> That's very sweet. <laughs> I I think he'll be happy. I hope so. I hope I hope those two crazy kids make it work. Oh, Charles. <laughs> he nothing like water off a duck's back. <laughs> My thought for uh Penny's nuptials is that um you know, she's a she's a career gal and she's living in San Francisco. Is she from San Francisco originally? No, she moved there. Why did she move there? Because she's a kinky bisexual. So I think. <laughs> I can already see the college years of Penny. Representation. <laughs> um, so I think, um, and I think that this all starts to happen um, during the, the 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 last bits of the wedding planner, this is all just happening like behind the scenes, where um, you know you know she has this Greek wedding, um, and it's just this like really like crazy experience, and then um, she goes to her favorite leather bar to blow off steam, and um, being the being the kind of person that she is. Uh, she is um, just still really riled up about this wedding. So she is trying to get someone who's going to throw plates at her. Uh, mm. And who does she run into at the bar? Uh, but one of the bridesmaids from the Greek wedding played by Natasha Lyonne. Of course. <laughs> um, and they fall in love. Uh, and because Natasha Lyonne um, is from this big Greek family and because Penny is just like, so friggin' tired of all the bells and whistles and the planning and she just you know it's her day and she just wants to you know be in love and be happy and not have to do a lick of planning they decide to have a destination wedding in greece on an island in the aegean sea where you know no this is before destination weddings no one's gonna friggin' fly out to greece so it's just like a little casual uh 
you know, ceremony on the beach. She's just wearing like a nice sundress and, and Natasha Leone. I think she's more of like, like a button down shirt kind of gal, but you know, it's very mm-hmm. casual, very mm-hmm. like, you know, barefoot in the sand ceremony at sunset. Now it's still, we're still in rom-com land. So Natasha Leone, you know, she's, she's a, she's a New York city gal. So she feels a little, you know, not quite at home in San Francisco, even less in Greece. They find out in Greece that Natasha Leone gets seasick on a boat like that. Oh, boy. <laughs> so after the ceremony, they, they've made plans to stay in Greece, but um, but they can't really, uh, you know, keep sailing around. So they uh, they go back to the mainland and they, they rent a little motorcycle and they just like scoot around I, uh, Greece for a week. I want I want on a motorcycle. <laughs> I want to scoot. <laughs> What's what's it's okay okay. What's Natasha Leone's character's name? She goes by Mel. It's short for Melissa. I want Mel to take Penny on a motorcycle trip. I like the idea. Maybe they get Massimo's helmets. Maybe they get Massimo's helmets. I like the idea. Mel's topping from the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> I like. There's something just like. If we, if we are, again, we're coordinating the Judy Greer career, uh-huh. maybe a useful exercise could be finding parallel careers that you can compare and contrast mm-hmm. other other species in this in this genus. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Natasha Leone is in the same family tree uh, as the species that is Judy Greer. Like their careers feel like certain parallels, except Judy Greer is like super bubbly and feminine mm-hmm. and Natasha Leone is like super smoky and masculine. And yeah. I, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm glad. I'm, I'm gl- <laughs> also, two things. Uh-huh. One, when you said that Penny was bisexual, I imagined her college years, and you could have in this in the movie a flashback to her college years where someone said, You're moving too fast even for a lesbian. <laughs> and she goes, ah! <laughs> Two. While you were telling your story, I figured out the meat cute between Charles and Penny. Oh, okay. What's their what's their meat cute? I'll just give you the line. Uh-huh. My wife liked gumballs. <laughs> Perfect. 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 This will be an everlasting love. <laughs> oh, man. Holy shit. Well... That that was fun going in, into into fantasy land, dreaming yeah. a little a little dream, a I little. Hope you had fun with us, little little wedding planner sequel. But now we've got to get down to business. We we got to cut the cake. This is the real serious stuff. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it's in a segment that we like to call judalization. Let's throw the let's throw this uh, bouquet. <laughs> let's let's do it. Let's do it. Let's get this garter belt with our teeth, and everyone's a little uncomfortable. Yeah, it's um, no good. Stop doing it, people. So, um. This is our fifth episode, and this is the segment where we rank every movie that we have discussed by how well the movie utilizes the unique creative theatrical talents of Dame Judy Greer. Right now, we have uh, Good Boy at the top of the list, and we have Pottersville way down at number four. Mm -hmm. Um, So, Patrick, where were you thinking The Wedding Planner falls in here? I have to say, I find her use uh, about equivalent to The Descendants, but I find she is better cast in The Wedding Planner. 
I still think Good Boy is hard to top with her both being the lead and being extremely well cast for that specific character. So I am saying The Wedding Planner at number two. I 100% agree with okay, you. Okay, excellent. Yeah, the energy and uh, the the unique loopiness that she brings to Penny and just, just wonderful line reading after line reading is iconic um this is definitely um like a step forward in her career and it shows in every second that she is on screen however she just she doesn't uh get the uh the 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 range that she does uh get to get to show in in good boy there's Mm -hmm. no there's no pathos to penny right um I don't think Penny even knows the meaning of the word. Right. Uh, also, imagine if the writing was sharp and she was actually able to deliver good jokes. I mean, th- then it would be number one with a bullet. But as, possibly. <laughs> but as it stands, uh, the wedding planner is taking the silver medal home for uh, judalization. Ooh, and... Typing it live in the Google Doc. This is very <laughs> exciting for me to witness. You can only imagine at home in your mind palace, but I'm here. <laughs> I have a very strict bun and I'm wearing a very functional pantsuit and I've got my little like like fanny pack. And a green accountant's visor for some reason. And a green accountant's <laughs> visor. Where did I even get one of those? And I think that's about all we have to say about uh, the wedding planner. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, next episode, we will be discussing the 2005 dysfunctional family dramedy in memory of my father um if you want to watch it it is available for free on tubi mm. um you can follow us on mastodon at nine six greers at laserdisc.party or uh if you have any um any thoughts that you want to share about us doing italian accents or you know anything else uh you can email us at nine six greers at proton.me um but until next time i'm reg and i'm patrick and, and say, say goodbye, goodbye to these. Please.